Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Merrill Perspectives Podcast. I'm Chris Heisey, Chief Investment Officer for Merrill and Bank of America Private Bank. The topic for this episode is market volatility and the Russia-Ukraine conflict. I know we are all concerned about the tragic humanitarian crisis unfolding and have many questions about where it could go from here and its potential impact on our lives, including oil prices, inflation, the economy, and the markets. On March 8th, we brought together a group of leading thinkers to help you better understand what's happening and how you can best prepare. First, I caught up with Ian Bremer, president and founder of Eurasia Group and one of the most sought after experts on geopolitics and global events. Ian offered much needed context on the current situation and where things may be headed next. Then I spoke with two leaders from B of A Global Research, Savita Subramanian, head of U.S. Equity and Quantitative Strategy and ESG Research, and Ethan Harris, head of Global Economics. We discussed the impact of the conflict on U.S. and global markets and investments and shared some thoughts on what you can do during this difficult time. Now let's turn to my conversation with Ian Bremer. Thank you so much for joining us, Ian. Before the current conflict, the Eurasia Group cited the global power vacuum as a key geopolitical risk for 2022. And for well over a decade, you have called this a G-Zero world. This has unfolded before our eyes vividly. Since the conflict started, how, if at all, has this affected that assessment? Well, uh, first, why did Putin make this decision? Um, and he made the decision in part because he saw not a G7, not a G20, but a G0. And there are two different ways that that plays out. First, the long term, where back in 2008, Putin took a piece of Georgia and wasn't much of a reaction. 2014 took two pieces of Ukraine. You know, four years later, he was hosting the World Cup and there were European leaders that were visiting him in Russia, even though he still was occupying Ukraine. Um, 2016, the intervention in the U.S. election or, you know, before that in Brexit, not much of a response. I mean, consistently what Putin saw were that as long as the acts that he was taking um, were not of direct massive national security consequence for um, major um, American and allied countries, he could get away with it. He had impunity. So I, I think that the first big piece here is that if the United States doesn't want to be the global policeman, if the Americans aren't, don't know what it means to promote democracy and don't agree on that message, that provides a lot more room for Putin in his backyard to reconstruct the empire that he lost in places like Belarus and Ukraine and Moldova, clearly what his, his effort has been. But then more proximately, Chris, over the past few months, you had this disastrous American withdrawal from Afghanistan, a unilateral decision that the allies really weren't on board with, certainly not the execution. Um, you had the Americans focusing much more on the pivot to Asia, on China. Merkel was gone. The new German chancellor, uh, uh, untested, a three-party coalition, his own social democrats, more focused on having a better relationship with Russia. You can understand in that environment why a Russian president would think that he could invade Ukraine and get away with it, especially just a couple of weeks after Putin travels to Beijing and the Chinese government says, you're our best friends. 
on the global stage. We're going to work with you economically, diplomatically, even militarily. I think that was in some ways the final piece of the puzzle that proved to Putin that in this G0 world, this was the time for him to redress the perceived wrongs from losing the Cold War and disintegrating the Soviet Union, which he considers to be, and he said this many times publicly, the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. So let's talk about security in general, Ian. National security, the access to technology, the access overall to natural resources, energy security in and of itself, this power vacuum creating regional alliances. This started all the way back, you could argue many years ago, or even during the tariff and trade war starting in 2018. Take us through all that. Well, the easiest way to think about it is that in 1989, when the Berlin Wall fell, we were very excited about a peace dividend. That especially the fact that the Europeans would no longer have to concern themselves with the prospects of um, a, an invasion on their territory, of, of significant military defense. Uh, it was no longer, national security was no longer going to be a top priority. They certainly weren't going to have to pay for it. And they weren't going to have to prioritize it as they thought about policy. Instead, they could focus on their economic development and they could focus on their social contract at home. Um, I think that we can now say clearly and definitively, Chris, that the peace dividend is over. And so that means, I mean, Olaf Scholz, the new German chancellor, gave a speech a week ago. It was the most important speech by any European leader since 1989 when the wall came down. And it was a speech that not only said the Germans were gonna provide weapons, advanced weapons to the Ukrainians, um, which they would use to fight a nuclear armed Russia, that Germany would do that. Inconceivable two weeks ago, you would have seen that. But also that Germany was gonna spend over 2% of their GDP on defense going forward. That Germany was prepared to take the hit on, on their own economy in terms of ongoing uh, necessary gas inputs uh, by putting major sanctions, including swift sanctions, including helping to freeze central bank assets and Russian currency all over the world. And the Germans are much more reliant on the Russians than the Americans are. They're prepared to do that. They're prepared to decouple themselves from the Russian economy. And no, they can't completely do that 100% on day one, but the decision has been made. So even if you had a peace deal, tomorrow with the Russians and the Ukrainians and no more Ukrainians died and all the Russians withdrew from Ukrainian territory, it would still be too late to recouple the Europeans with Russia. And so what we are now seeing, I mean, you tried, it was Bush tried to get the Germans to spend on defense, Obama tried, Trump tried, Biden tried, they all failed, Putin succeeded. Putin has succeeded in decoupling the Europeans from the Russian economy. He's succeeded in creating Russia as an international pariah insofar as we talk about advanced industrial democracies. That includes Japan, it includes Australia, but it does not include China or India or Brazil. So we are seeing not just the decoupling between the so-called West and Russia, but we're seeing friend sourcing. Not insourcing, not outsourcing, but you're increasingly only aligning your supply chains with the countries that you find politically palatable. And that is a 
obviously it's a radically different way of thinking about the global markets, of commodity flows, of capital flows, and it's expensive. It's not the way that CEOs want to do business. They, they want to do business where the markets are. They don't want to do business where the politics are problematic or, or, or happy. But that's the world that we have just entered back into after 30 years of not having to particularly deal with it very much. So let's, let's press on that point for a second. You've talked about, in, in one of your other books, the end of free market capitalism uh, as we see it. Uh, you've just touched on that a little bit between what governments are doing and what corporates are doing. And given the crisis in Ukraine and what you talked about, the extension of a G-Zero world, are the sanctions working from your perspective? Is it a situation where this end of free market capitalism takes a whole nother um, event forward? Um, the sanctions are working insofar as they are destroying the Russian economy. I mean, in a matter of days, you're going to have massive goods shortages in Russian cities in winter, and the people are going to be very unhappy about that. Uh, a lot of them will blame the West. Uh, the amount of disinformation that comes from Russian state media is immense. It's much worse than what you'd see in the United States or Europe, much more all-encompassing, and the Russians have shut off all of their independent media, and they've cut off Twitter and Facebook and the BBC and CNN and Voice of America. So you're not getting the information you used to get with the exception of a relatively small number of young, educated, digitally savvy urban Russians. But still, they're going to be very unhappy about this. There are already over 10,000 Russians that have been arrested for peaceful anti-war demonstrations in the last week and a half. Those numbers will go way up as the Russian economy collapses. And the Russian economy is collapsing directly as a consequence of the sanctions that are being put on. Uh, most importantly, the fact that their war chest has been frozen, that a majority of access to Russian currency globally is gone. Um, furthermore, um, the oligarchs are getting sanctioned, the banks are getting sanctioned, um, the United States is cutting off its direct energy imports from the Russians. There are some limitations that are coming in Europe too. Um, and then, of course, you have so many of the Western corporations that were doing business in Russia that are pulling out. Some because they're told they have to, many because they just don't want to be there anymore. They understand from a brand perspective, it's just a reputational disaster for them. Again, they're not coming back. So in that regard, the sanctions are working, but, but they're not working in the sense that they're not going to change Putin's behavior. I mean, the biggest problem here, and the reason that I am quite negative about the outlook on this Russian invasion, is because I can't see any circumstance under which Putin emerges from this conflict in remotely close to as good a shape as he was before he invaded. Um, and I say that that's both true in terms of his domestic political situation, certainly in terms of Russia's economic environment, but also, and this is critical, in terms of Russia's geopolitical position in Europe. And remember, this is ostensibly why Russia invaded to begin with, is because Putin was so unhappy about his position in the European security environment, that he said that status quo was unacceptable. Well, you know what? It's just gotten a lot worse. 
because you've got Finland and Sweden, non-NATO countries that are sending weapons to Ukraine. And further, they're now saying a majority say they want to join NATO. That's never been true in history before. You've got Denmark saying that they're going to get rid of all the restrictions on their dealing uh, with NATO and the European uh, defense organizations. That's going to be a problem. You've got the Baltic states wanting permanent NATO bases right on Russia's border. You've got forward deployments in countries like Poland and Bulgaria and Romania. They're not going to go away. You've got, as I mentioned, the Germans spending massively more on their defense capabilities. I mean, NATO today is an organization with a mission. It's a revived, stronger, and more consolidated organization that's focused on Russia. And before Putin invaded Ukraine, that wasn't true. Before Putin invaded Ukraine, you had a whole bunch of European countries that are saying, well, we don't really trust the future of the United States. We don't really know what we're doing here. We want to work with the Russians economically. We want to work with the Chinese. All that's out the window. It's all looking worse for Putin. And even in Ukraine, I can't see how he can, he can overthrow Zelensky, the Ukrainian president. He can take over Kiev. And I expect, by the way, both of those things will occur. But he can't control Ukraine. I mean, the cost of occupying a country that is incredibly hostile, that will likely have a government in exile in Western Ukraine with massive economic and military support from the entire West, which will be deployed in service of continuing to attack Russians on the ground, that's, that's nowhere close to what Putin clearly thought was going to happen militarily when he orders 190,000 troops across the borders to all go in. So this, I mean, unless Putin's going to be removed from power, which, I mean, you know, is an outside possibility, but you wouldn't bet on it in this environment. In any other circumstance, Putin is angrier. He's more insecure. Um, and and he's, he's vindictive. And he's prepared to take actions against other countries, including NATO states. Given that, is... is is there an end game here? Is there a timeline that it's possible? Or is this just still multi-scenarios that could still play out as we work through this? In the last two weeks, so many people have been asking me, what happens when this is all over? And my response has been, what do you mean over? Uh, I mean, when you say that uh, the peace dividend is gone, it's gone. So, I mean, I can see an end to the actual fighting in Ukraine. Uh, we've now had almost two weeks of fighting. There are two million Ukrainian refugees, a million a week. You've seen nothing like that since World War II. Um, I expect five to 10 million refugees before this is over. Um, out of a country of 44 million, that could be as many as 20% of Ukraine's total population. Imagine what would have to happen to your country for one in five people to simply say, we're out, we're gone, we're done. It's, it's unimaginable. So, I mean, that, that's part of the reason why this is so incredibly dangerous. But once Kiev is overthrown, once the government is gone, at that point I could see the Chinese, um, together with the French and the Germans, with a new Normandy format. The Chinese have just had a phone call, Xi Jinping, with Macron and with Schultz. This was clearly prepped in advance with Russian President Putin on the idea of a new format for what negotiations over Ukraine should be. We don't want to talk with the Americans. 
We want the Europeans who we think are more balanceable, and we want the Chinese at the table who are our buddies. Very interesting to see the Chinese and the French and the Germans kind of lining up for that. We want to watch that very carefully. So that would be, as that emerges, that'd be one thing I watch very carefully. And then, you know, again, after Zelensky is gone, if you're Putin, um, you can argue domestically that you've kind of accomplished your proximate goals. And then you have to talk more broadly about these issues of European security, which will not go well, but where China's on your side and where a whole bunch of European countries at least want to keep investing in China, maybe that creates a bit of a wedge that allows some light back in to the Russian economy. That's probably what Putin is thinking about right now. But I want to be clear, and this is something that is not well understood in the West right now. In, in the United States and Europe, there is an assumption that you can't do a no-fly zone because that could lead to World War III. That could be NATO fighter pilots uh, fighting Russian fighter pilots. You can't do American troops or NATO troops in Ukraine defending the Ukrainians because that could lead to World War III. We could be shooting each other. But it's perfectly fine to send the most advanced fighter jets um, and, uh, and, and, and sniper rifles and anti-aircraft and anti-tank weapons to the Ukrainians to blow up Russia. And it's perfectly fine to provide real-time intelligence to the Ukrainians on the disposition of Russian forces on the ground to better allow the Ukrainians to blow them up. And it's perfectly fine to do everything possible to destroy the Russian economy in the service of forcing them to capitulate or to destabilize the Russian regime. Now, I'm not saying I disagree with those policies. That's not the purpose here. The purpose here is to explain that from Putin's perspective, which obviously matters here, from Putin's perspective, he sees all of those as acts of war. And he's willing to retaliate. The idea that this is just a war that involves Russia and Ukraine and doesn't really involve NATO, even though NATO's taking all these steps against Russia, that's not realistic, that's not sustainable. And it's, it's part of the reason why this conflict is so much more important than Yemen or Syria or Libya or Myanmar, because none of those had those direct knock-on global implications. Ukraine does. So let's, let's speak of the NATO alliance. Let's speak of this theme of deglobalization that many have talked about to either regional economic zones, regional alliances. We've talked about energy security, even technology security, cybersecurity, national security in general. Let's now pivot over to China. China's desire or not de a desire to move further away from the West. Take us through what China's thinking right now. You touched on it before, but take us through what they're thinking and ultimately what's the relationship with the U.S. as we move forward. So uh, China has decided and decided by President Xi Jinping when he invited Putin uh, to the Olympics that geopolitically, he sees the global order similarly to that of Russia. Xi Jinping sees what the Americans are trying to lead with the Quad, the relationship with Japan and Australia and India, as a similar effort at Chinese containment in their backyard to what Putin sees with an expansion of NATO. Um, the, the Chinese see American sanctions against Huawei and other uh, key areas of national security um, dual use in the Chinese economy as similarly to the way the Russians 
see efforts by the Americans and the Europeans post-2014 in hurting the Russian economy through sanctions. So they are um, obviously much more friendly. And, and that friendship uh, has not been shaken by the Russian invasion in Ukraine. Having said that, uh, the Chinese would prefer a diplomatic outcome here. They have announced on uh, numerous occasions they recognize the territorial integrity of Ukraine. Um, that's a long-standing policy of China. It, it certainly reflects China's views on Taiwan as being part of a sovereign China. They wouldn't want to in any way upset that uh, policy background. But I want to be very clear. The Chinese are not neutral on this issue, even though they abstained at the United Nations Security Council. They support the Russian position. If you look at uh, Chinese media, they are censoring anything that is pro-Ukrainian. It's all pro-Putin. There are Chinese media organizations actually physically embedded with Russian troops as they're war fighting in Ukraine, beaming that back into China. I don't think a lot of Americans are aware of that right now, but it's very important to understand. Furthermore, something that's not public, but I'll share with you because you know it's not like I got this out of intelligence. Um, the Chinese ambassador to Russia has just organized a meeting of all of the top Chinese investors in Russia um, to say, hey, there's a unique opportunity here. And as the West is pulling out, now is when we should be investing. Now is when we show our commitment to Russia. We could be building our relationships on the ground for decades. So it's a better position for us. I mean, obviously, that is not a government that is trying to align with American sanctions on Russia or with American pressure on Russia. So having said that, the fact that the Chinese are reaching out to Macron and to Schultz in Germany um, does reflect the fact that the Chinese don't want their economy to be decoupled from the West. They, they are a power, unlike Russia, which is a, a global power that express, is expressed almost exclusively in their military capabilities. For China, it's much more about their economic capabilities and their interdependence with companies all over the world. And they intend those investments largely to continue whether it's the financial sector or it's the technology sector, it's manufacturing, it's luxury goods, you name it. And so I do think that the Chinese, even though they've made their bed with Putin, they want to be seen publicly as um, a more mature, responsible power that you can still do good business with. So with that mindset, what does that change or not in terms of China and, and Taiwan's presence uh, together or not in the coming years? Um, in the near future, Chris, it doesn't change much at all. Uh, for, for precisely the reasons I just mentioned, the Chinese do not want to be seen, as by the Europeans in particular, as being opportunistic in the fog of war in suddenly creating a second front with Taiwan, because that would drive a much more unified NATO and a more unified Quad into cutting off relations with China. They don't want that. And they don't need it. Because frankly, unlike Russia, which has a country that's been in decline in so many ways for decades now, China's not in decline at all. The Chinese economy continues to grow. By 2030, they're likely to 
overtake the United States as the largest economy in the world. More importantly, by 2030, their military capabilities in Taiwan and around Taiwan will be so much more asymmetric compared to those of the United States and its allies. So there is no hurry for China here. So let's end on this uh, final question. From a U.S. perspective, do you see any policy response other than what we've already discussed uh, in the next few years to be able to try to gain some of that balance back? Um, I think that the United States investing heavily in American capabilities and in friends' capabilities really matters. Uh, the biggest silver lining that comes from this entire crisis is just how much more aligned the French, the Germans, the Brits, the Italians are with the United States right now. I mean, the UK-EU relationship is much more functional because of the Russia-Ukraine crisis than it was at any point in the last six years given Brexit. If you were watching the State of the Union speech with Biden and you squinted for the first 10 minutes with all of the standing ovations from Democrats and, and Republicans, you, you, could be, you could be forgiven for believing that the U.S. was actually a pretty strongly functional representative democracy. So I do think that there is an opportunity in this crisis to put aside a lot of divisions and focus on the baseline of shared values, shared institutions, and, and, and shared investment, which is not global. We thought it was global. A lot of people after the Soviet Union collapse believed it would become global. It ain't. But precisely because it's not global, it becomes more critical to defend um, and to bolster. And I do think that there are a lot of people that are thinking that way today, and they weren't thinking that way just a couple weeks ago. Ian, in, in this crisis and in these unprecedented times, I want to thank you very much for this fascinating discussion today. Thanks again. Yeah, Chris, we've been working together for decades now, and it's uh, really good to have the relationship at a time like today. Now let's go to my conversation with Savita Subramanian and Ethan Harris. Thank you both for joining me on what I believe will be a great discussion. Thank you. Thanks for having So us. let's first start with you, Ethan. Ian talked about gone is the peace dividend, at least in his view. We talked about the power vacuum, the, the fact that there's uh, the extension of the G0 world, given the accelerating crisis that's going on in Ukraine. Tell us your thoughts about how to think about the ramifications for the global economy. Well, I think the first thing to keep in mind here is it's a very uncertain environment. I mean, we've had a lot of predictions that have come wrong, and so we've got to be humble going forward. I think what we can say with some confidence is that there's going to be a pretty challenging period ahead. Uh, this crisis isn't going to go away quickly. Uh, we're probably in a world of high sanctions and geopolitical risk for a year or maybe longer. Um, so the way we look at this is we kind of look at it on a scenario basis, a kind of a benign scenario where things ease back a bit in the next three to six months, a baseline view where we kind of stay where we are now, you know, very tough sanctions, uh, Russia stays in the Ukraine, so that crisis continues. Um, and there's ongoing pressure on the, uh, the global economy with that environment. And then finally, there's the, the big escalation. And that would mainly be, be come from uh, putting sanctions on all Russian energy exports. So we need to think about a broad range of outcomes. S speaking of broad range of outcomes, given the scenario analysis, um, we all could put into our models certain inputs and 
look at what comes in the output um, through straight line math. You mentioned these three scenarios. In, in your opinion, how much is the ultimate scenario driven by the energy complex, the security of energy, the security of commodities, natural resources, et cetera, at least in the in intermediate term? Yeah, I think the energy story is the centerpiece here. Um, you know, the, the connections between Russia and the rest of the world economically are very small outside of commodities. I mean, they just are not important uh, to the global economy or global markets. What they can do, though, is disrupt uh, energy supplies. And there, you know, we, we need to take that very seriously. Energy's been a big factor in a lot of downturns historically. Beyond that, we need to, to look a bit at the psychology of this. Um, you know, this, this is creating a, a risk premium in the markets and a risk premium in behavior. And so that isn't, uh, we need to think a little bit about psychology as well as, well as the oil picture. Fantastic uh, point, because you, you can't model in psychology. You know, Savita picks it up in valuation and investor sentiment. So with that as the backdrop, Savita, let's talk a little bit about the repricing of risk, the revaluation. You know, everybody, it was waiting for something like this, but when it happens so quickly, then the fear gauge goes up and all of a sudden people go risk, risk off, risk averse, and they're waiting for signals. Give us your best ideas about where are we in that process? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, so first of all, what we've seen so far is actually relatively normal within the context of a geopolitical shock. And if you go back over time and you look at, you know, prior shocks that we've had, um, the market has sold off pretty pretty quickly and pretty extremely on average by about, you know, five to 10 percentage points. So far, we've seen about eight percentage points given up from, uh, from the day that the news broke. Um, so this isn't that unusual relative to prior uh, geopolitical shocks. I think what we need to make sure that we do at this point is sort of recalibrate our view of the world in light of the fact that, as Ethan points out, this probably isn't going to end quickly. This could be a protracted period where you know energy supply is challenged. Uh, fortunately, the U.S. is a net producer of energy, which I think is a, a big positive for the S&P 500 and for the U.S. consumer. But um, but I think volatility is the name of the game, and you know with that as the playbook, we would stick with quality. We would stick with you know yield, safe, attractive income, and I think the equity risk premium just took a little bit of a step function higher. Um, even if this resolves itself, I think the world that we're in right now is is something that has been building, which is the idea that, that we're at peak globalization and those benefits that we've seen for companies in the U.S. may be stalled out temporarily or, you know, potentially longer. So I think those are the things we need to think about. It's a, it's a, it's a great segue to this concept, mixing with the psychology end of if you're a company, uh, pick your industry. Your outlook now has been clouded a lot more than what it was, even in the face of Fed tightening and other things that we were worried about heading into this year. And what we've been doing in the Chief Investment Office is trying to rebalance around the high quality areas, U.S. versus non-U.S., uh, large and small, small, having a, small caps having a more difficult time. And then on a sector basis, Savita, talk to us about this big run we've had in energy. Yeah. Big run in some parts of commodities. Absolutely. Certain commodities going up 150% in two days. Unprecedented. Um, and we still get the question, what do you do with 
uninvested capital right now? Is it too late in energy? Um, is, could energy and defense and aerospace and other places actually be high quality? You know, I think that's the real question is what is quality today? And when you look at energy, these are companies that are generating free cash flow. They've, they've gotten the memo from you know, ESG investors and they have essentially um, committed to transforming themselves. They are much more capital disciplined than, than we've seen energy companies in the past. Their dividends are sacrosanct. We're, we're seeing preservation of dividends as job one. So I actually think, to your point, that energy might be a new kind of a higher quality sector relative to the oil price volatility and the, you know, the vagaries that we've seen over the last 10 to 20 years. Now, there's always a, a you know a, a risk with energy companies, which is that they derive their value from the underlying commodity, and I think that's what we also need to watch. Is you know as I, I cover ESG as well, it's hard to be bullish on energy and cover ESG. But I think right now it makes sense to be bullish on energy, given that we haven't gotten to this you know net zero world, and we need oil and energy to keep the lights on in the factories as we transition. So you know I still. We're still overweight energy. We think there's a lot more to go. Interestingly, investors haven't necessarily caught up to the stellar performance that we've seen within the sector. Um, so we've seen energy, you know, double, triple over the last couple of years. But the average institutional investor is still a little bit gun shy, still underweight. And I think that suggests that there could be more upside than downside risks to the sector. Perfect, perfect. Now, let's switch over a little bit to something less important, very much less important. Let's talk about the Fed. Um, the Fed's kind of in the background. Well, they don't count uh, anymore. Okay. They don't count anymore, <laughs> all things considered. Fed. Does the crisis in Ukraine and the extension of this power vacuum, not to mention what may or may not go on between the, uh, China's relationship with the U.S., what's the assessment on the Fed for this year and then into next year? Well, there's a pretty good playbook for central banks when you have a big oil shock like this. And that is the first thing you do is you watch and you try to figure out what exactly is the problem we're facing. Are we facing an inflation problem or a growth problem? Obviously, it's both. And the question is, which is the worst challenge? Right now, I think the Fed is kind of on railroad tracks. Um, they've waited a long time to start hiking rates. I think they're behind the curve, frankly. Uh, the natural course for the Fed, all else equal, with none of these events going on, would be to hike regularly at every meeting until they feel like they're closer to normal. What the crisis does is it just creates a little bit of uncertainty around that, that exit strategy. But I still think they're going to hike uh, at every meeting this year. They have seven rate hikes. That'll get them up close to 2%, which is close to neutral. So they're kind of in a more normal place by the end of the year. And then they're going to feel their way forward uh, next year. So it, while the events have been quite dramatic for the economy, for inflation, um, and certainly geopolitical events have been awful here, uh, for the Fed, it kind of leaves them on the same path. Which is not necessarily the prevailing thought that's always out there. When you have supply shock driven situations, driven by the terrible events that we're all witnessing, You've got the supply shock, you've got price inflation that's being extended based upon yes. it. At the same time, there's growth worries now, and the Fed hasn't even lifted rates yet. So from a market perspective, 
you can understand why there's a repricing and a revaluation. And there's always thoughts of what's the counterparty risk out there? Who do I know that can't get access to liquidity that might need it at a time of crisis? And that will likely overhang us. But Savita, taking what Ethan just said about the Fed, let's talk a little bit about how you view the yield curve and does that affect what your thoughts are for the path forward for equities for the remainder of the year? Flattening yield curve, obviously but parts of the yield curve are still steep. Tens to 30s are steep, relatively speaking. Fed funds to the 10-year are steep, but the twos to 10 spread is the lowest we've seen in, well, a couple, few years. Take us through your thoughts on how that translates to your theme for the rest of the year. Sure. I mean, I think our theme for the rest of the year is if the Fed is going to hike rates seven times, that's great for cash. And one of the positive uh, factors about the S&P 500 today, as well as the U.S. consumer, is that, um, that we've seen this liquidity transfer from the Fed and from the government to consumers and corporates. So consumers and corporates are sitting on close to $20 trillion of cash, which is a huge positive in an environment where cash yields are going from zero to close to 2% in a, in a pretty short period of time. So I think that's the first, the first point I would make is that the Fed hiking seven times could actually be um, unusually positive for some of these cash-rich areas of the market. And, you know, that would be healthcare, even energy companies, financials. A lot of companies are throwing off a lot of cash. Tech, tech companies have lots of cash, net cash. Um, so that's the, that's the positive. And then I think on the long end of the curve, that's where I'm a little less certain, and I think we are all right. <laughs> sort of in wait-and-see mode as to what growth expectations really pan out to be. Um, so if this geopolitical conflict that we're seeing is actually crippling to growth and to consumer confidence and corporate confidence, I think that would be a reason to get a little bit more defensive, um, you know, maybe cool your heels on some of the more cyclical areas of the market. Uh, but I still think that you could benefit from buying some of these cash-rich companies that have, um, you know, haven't necessarily taken on the same amounts of leverage that you would normally see coming out of a recession. See, we, we think that makes sense as well for a variety of reasons. But if you have a core portfolio and you're looking to rebalance that core, you want to look at the high quality and that has been indiscriminately sold off for obvious Absolutely. reasons. But perhaps gone too far. And some of that may be also established tech. Yes. Not the concept, long duration, low profitability areas, but the established tech. Absolutely. So I think that within the tech sector, we've been writing about this, and every week there's a whole new you know, field to sift through of beaten down tech companies. And I think what's interesting is that you're right. We've seen a lot of companies trade down so aggressively that their free cash flow yields are now at a level that would warrant, you know, stepping in and, and buying. And these are uh, in software, in semiconductors, IT services. So not necessarily the, the super high growth, long duration tech stocks, but some of the more household names that haven't necessarily, um, you know, benefited from geopolitical risk, but have essentially been thrown out, the babies thrown out with the bathwater during the tech sell-off. Right. Let's toggle back to the engines of growth that we all point to for any economy. And then add to it the excess savings that's still out there. Uh, job growth recently was extraordinary. You wrote about it. Uh, haven't seen it like this before in the context of what we're going through. What's the probability of U.S. recession in the next 12 months? Uh, <clears throat> low. I mean, you need... 
Listen, go back historically. Oil is always one of the factors in recessions, right? But it can't do it on its own. You need something else to go wrong. Um, in recent crises, we've had obviously the uh, COVID shock. We've had the, uh, f the great financial crisis. Um, you know, these are things that, that those were the main things that caused the last two recessions, not high oil prices. I mean, we had we had record oil prices in 2008, and we wouldn't have had a recession if it wasn't for the credit crisis. So, so oil matters. It's going to hurt a bit. If we get the worst case scenario and we have the big disruption to energy supply, now you're talking about a weak growth economy, not a, not a small accident, but a big accident, weak growth. But even then, I don't think we'll get a, a, get a re outright recession. And we haven't even fully reopened yet, technically speaking. Yeah, I mean, the economy is, uh, you know, in some ways, the timing of this shock isn't that bad because it comes at a time when the COVID crisis is fading people are ready to get out and start consuming services again. As you pointed out, they are flush with cash. I mean, bank accounts that are record levels, uh, personal saving is at record levels. Um, the household sector is in pretty good shape to handle a big um, energy price spike. Uh, the low end, obviously, you're going to hurt. Um, they don't have all that uh, liquid savings. Uh, but even there, uh, you know, wage growth is quite high. So uh, we're, we're in pretty good shape to weather the storm in the U.S. Savita, any final thoughts for investors with excess cash right now, for investors looking for opportunities? Any final thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'm lucky enough to cover the U.S., the, the equity market, and I think there's a lot of places uh, to go <laughs> within the market. So, so let's think about what's scarce right now. Inflation protection is scarce and income is scarce. And if you look at equities, they sit right in the middle between kind of commodities, which are all inflation protection, but no income, and bonds, which are all income, but no inflation protection. The great thing about U.S. stocks is that earnings grow with inflation in most cases. So our advice to investors is take that excess cash, look for the opportunities within the market that are undervalued, offer protection against potentially a longer cycle of inflation than, than we were expecting, and also offer growing dividends. And I think that's that's really the, the mantra that we've been repeating over and over again. And so far it's worked. We've seen stocks with inflation-protected yield outperform the market significantly this year, and I would expect that to continue. We would also agree, and we're looking for opportunities right now to rebalance, not necessarily at the highest of volatility, but as volatility does come down and uh, hopefully order is more restored uh, over the coming weeks and into the summer months, we'll be looking to do that as well. I want to thank both of you for a great discussion. Thank you for your time, as always. Some final thoughts before we close. In this time of highest uncertainty, concerns have risen significantly and accelerated by a terrible crisis. Stress in the system has increased, but yet still at low levels. Concerns over Europe's and the U.S. economic growth path are also picking up in the face of a tighter Fed and still high inflation. So what do we do? We still remain calm, we stay balanced, and we revisit our goals. Allow extreme volatility in the markets and uncertainty to subside. Consider rebalancing in areas that have fallen too far based upon your own personal targets and relative to the more attractive trends we still see developing within the equity markets. Use diversification across assets to help lower volatility overall. And stay disciplined, 
review your strategy, and have a plan for when some stability begins. And thank you all for tuning in to this edition of the Merrill Perspectives podcast. I hope the insights my guests and I discussed here will help you make sense of the changes we're seeing in the markets today and how the situation in Ukraine is affecting things. To learn more about our latest insights on the markets, please visit ml.com. And you can sign up for Merrill Perspectives wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. This podcast was recorded on March 8, 2022. Ian Brammer and Eurasia Group and G Zero Media are not affiliated with Bank of America Corporation. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment products. You should carefully consider all relevant factors in making these decisions, and you are encouraged to consult with any of your professional advisors. Any opinions or other information correspond to the date of this recording and are subject to change. The views expressed are not necessarily those of Bank of America Private Bank or Merrill. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or any recommendation from any Bank of America Private Bank or Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fetter, and Smith entity to the listener. The information is general in nature and is not intended to provide personal investment advice. The information does not take into account the specific investment objectives, financial situation, and particular needs of any specific person who may receive it. Investors should understand that statements regarding future prospects may not be realized. Bank of America, Merrill, their affiliates and advisors do not provide legal, tax, or accounting advice. Clients should consult their legal and or tax advisors before making any financial decisions. The Chief Investment Office, CIO, provides thought leadership on wealth management, investment strategy in global markets, portfolio management solutions, due diligence, and solutions oversight and data analytics. CIO viewpoints are developed by Bank of America Private Bank, a division of Bank of America NA, Bank of America, and Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith Incorporated, MLPFNS, or Merrill, a registered broker-dealer, registered investment advisor, and a wholly owned subsidiary of Bank of America Corporation, B of A Corp. B of A Global Research is research produced by B of A Securities, Inc., B of A-S, and or one or more of its affiliates. B of A-S is a registered broker-dealer, member SIPC, and a wholly owned subsidiary of Bank of America Corporation. Asset allocation, diversification, and rebalancing do not ensure a profit or protect against loss in declining markets. Investments have varying degrees of risk. Some of the risks involved with equity securities include the possibility that the value of the stocks may fluctuate in response to events specific to the companies or markets, as well as economic, political, or social events in the U.S. or abroad. Bonds are subject to interest rate, inflation, and credit risks. Treasury bills are less volatile than longer-term fixed-income securities and are guaranteed as a timely payment of principal and interest by the U.S. government. Investments in foreign securities, including ADRs, involve special risks, including foreign currency risk and the possibility of substantial volatility due to adverse political, economic, or other developments. These risks are magnified for investments made in emerging markets. Investments in a certain industry or sector may pose additional risk due to lack of diversification and sector concentration. Sustainable and impact investing and or environmental social and governance ESG managers may take into consideration factors beyond traditional financial information to select securities, which could result in relative investment performance deviating from other strategies or broad market benchmarks, depending on whether such sectors or investments are in or out of favor in the market. Further, ESG strategies may rely on certain values-based criteria to eliminate exposures found in similar strategies or broad market benchmarks, which could also result in relative investment performance deviating. Dividend payments are not guaranteed and are paid only when declared by an issuer's board of directors. The amount of a dividend payment, if any, can vary over time. 
Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith Incorporated, also referred to as MLPF and SR Merrill, makes available certain investment products sponsored, managed, distributed, or provided by companies that are affiliates of B of A Corp. MLPF and S is a registered broker-dealer, registered investment advisor, member SIPC, and a wholly owned subsidiary of B of A Corp. Bank of America Private Bank is a division of Bank of America N.A., member FDIC, and a wholly owned subsidiary of B of A Corp. Investment products are not FDIC insured, are not bank guaranteed, and may lose value. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Bank of America Private Bank or Merrill nor any of their affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. And any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2022, Bank of America Corporation. All rights reserved.